0: By the power Jupiter has placed in my right arm, our Roman legions will destroy the Egyptian foe on this day. Artillerymen, fire the catapult! Ow! By the beard of Mars, what happened? Well, the
1: catapult didn't throw the rock very far, uh, so it landed on some of our guys standing really
0: near it. I know that. I can see that. When I ask what happened, I mean, why didn't the catapult work? Well, General Maxipad. Maximus. Maximus.
1: The pentals on the onagers were weakened.
0: The who was what? Uh,
1: I don't know what it means. It's just what the catapult guys told me to tell you.
0: What weakened them?
1: It's rust. You see that brown stuff on the, the wheelie part over there?
0: Yes. What is that? Rust. Never heard of it.
1: I know, right? I think it's new. It started right after... Remember when we dragged the catapults through the salt marsh in Macedonia?
0: The day after we stopped at that cute little place for grilled octopus?
1: If that helps you remember, yeah. Anyway, I'm just spitballing here. Maybe something about the salt water is causing the brown stuff.
0: Well, I'll put an end to that. Legionnaires, I decree that henceforth from this day we shall have no more rusk. Rust, sir. No more rust.
1: But I, I I don't think it works that way.
0: But I don't think it works that way.
1: You weren't supposed to yell that part.
0: Uh, oh, oh.
1: This rust thing, General, I don't think we understand it, so why not listen to these people talk about rust and corrosion? And now he keeps saying the Statue of Liberty tastes funny. Colin McEnroe.
2: Yeah, actually, I was uh, told by the National Park Service to stop uh, licking the Statue of Liberty. It was a problem. It was a phase I went through. I didn't do it anymore. All right. So <clears> – <throat> more so than most of our introductions. That one was actually based in history. Uh, I mean, that one sort of almost actually happened. The Roman army did have problems with rust in their catapults. Um, And it's as good a way as any to catapult us into a conversation about rust. Uh, We are talking today to Jonathan Waldman. He is the author of Rust, The Longest War. This is a a very terrific book in in the history, in the tradition of of John McPhee or, or, or writers who kind of take uh, a subject that's sitting right in front of your eyes that you've become very accustomed to. Mark Kurlansky, another one of our favorite writers, does this too. Uh, and just pulls it apart and tells you about all the amazing stories behind it. Uh, and and also tells you that you really didn't know very much about it. Um, so Jonathan Waldman, first of all, welcome to our show today. Terrific book. Thanks a lot, Colin. So let's begin with what rust is, because uh, when you really get down to it or when I really got down to it uh, until I really started reading your book, I didn't understand. I couldn't have explained. I would have known to say the word oxidation, uh, but I don't, don't really know what that means. So is, is there a way <laughs> uh, as talking to me as if I am a five year old or an eight year old, uh, which is probably a good ballpark to explain what happens when something rusts?
3: Yeah, to the 8-year-old, maybe a 12-year-old, I'd say rust is okay. a four-letter word. Okay. Um, to the 5-year-old, Or the 8-year-old. Yeah,
0: the
3: 8-year-old, I'd mm. say that... Um, I, you know, engineers have yelled at me because I use rust to apply to all metals. I'm, I'm, I'm really referring to corrosion. Mm. But it's what happens to all but four of the metals in the universe. Um, it's what happens when our most abundant element does what it does, which is basically try to combine with them.
2: By stealing electrons and latching on, so you need, um, I think, three conditions to have rust, right? Yeah, and say what those three conditions are.
3: So you need you need oxygen, you need uh, you need some metal, um, and you also need a pathway for electrons to migrate from one to the other. So. So with um, almost everything, guys who work on oceans, on Navy ships, are familiar with that pathway
2: being called saltwater. Yeah. Um, and, and water in general, right? But, but saltwater in particular. Saltwater is even better, yeah. Yeah. Um, we know what can happen uh, to someone uh, if uh, water gets on a metallic surface. We know that from one of our favorite movies.
4: Oh. 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 Did that hurt?
0: No. It feels wonderful. I've held that axe up for ages. Goodness,
4: how did you ever get like this?
0: Well, about a year ago, I was chopping that tree when suddenly it began to rain. And right in the middle of a chop, I I rusted solid. I've been that way ever since.
1: Well, Uh, you're perfect now. My neck, my, my neck.
2: That, of course, is from The Godfather. Uh, the uh, may not be scientifically accurate. Of course, that's from The Wizard of Oz. So, um, so you know, uh, so that sort of generally tells us not that, but what you told us before. It tells us kind of chemically what rust is. Um, but I think we also need to say what happens when, when a, a material rusts. And, and the main thing that happens from what I've gleaned from, from your book, Jonathan Waldman, is that material weakens and becomes less trustworthy yeah exactly it becomes it becomes some other stuff which we never
3: wanted i mean unless unless you 're the photographer I wrote about who takes beautiful pictures of uh, of rusting metals it 's not the alloy that engineers came up with and thought would suit whatever purpose they came up with.
2: One thing that surprised me was i, I it was the long trek the long scientific track trek to even understand exactly what rust is. I would have sort of thought. Okay, so, I mean, it really is true that, that 2,000 years ago, the Roman Ar- army was noticing rust is getting to be a little bit of a problem. And I would have saw, assumed that science would have understood it, I don't know, within, let's say, 1,000 years. But it really, <laughs> it goes into the early 20th century, and Linus Pauling and people like that are still trying to figure out what's going on here with rust. Yeah, yeah. I, I sort of felt the same way instinctively. I I
3: I try not to... You have to do this thing as a writer where you sort of blind yourself to current stuff and you per- you maybe you don't pretend cuz you kind of I kind of am an idiot in most things. So you go you go back and I was looking at um at uh Boyle who was looking at rust in the 16th century. And he would he would do things he'd collect metals of all of there weren't that many types available to him, but he'd collect metals and he'd soak them in vinegar and he he'd pee on them and he'd put them in salt water and he he'd, he was kind of obsessed with really pee, right?
2: Because he also tasted pee. his own urine
3: yeah i know it uh, 's a charming detail 16th. that
2: you f- saw fit to uh to share with the reading public yeah uh, i I guess I should admit there are pee and poop jokes in the book, but
3: what are you going to do right it 's right up our alley where <laughs> we get no complaints <laughs> you 're on the so right he, show uh, so he also he tried to transmutate uh mercury into gold uh he he definitely thought it was possible, and, and his theory on sort of the science of rust was that metals had these little he called them corpuscules, I guess little holes in them and that and that somehow these holes were of the right size that salt water got in there and he wasn't really sure what the salt
2: water did but it definitely messed up the metal. Um, Not the way way it works. Not the way it works, no. So it took a long time to really kind of understand this process. I want to say as we're going along here, if you have questions about Rust, uh, this is certainly the most comprehensive book for the layman reader ever written about it. Tweet us, WNPR Collin, at WNPR Collin. Well, I want to just jump ahead a little bit, Jonathan Waldman, because I want to make sure we get all this stuff in. So we can joke all we want about Rust, but Rust is scary. I mean, Rust creates huge problems. Some of the problems that you sketch out in the book range from, I mean, obviously, you know, I mean, bridges can collapse and people can die. Um, you, you, you sketched out one portrait of these, these rusty boats sitting out in some bay in, in California, which sort of nobody knows what to do. Well, explain that situation. That's an example of how scary, intractable, and fragile rust can make a situation.
3: Yeah, so the funny thing about that situation is, I I actually think it's mildly, cha- it, more than mildly changed since I wrote about it. But I think there are still some old ships. They're from the merchant marine. They're bobbing in Sassoon Bay, twenty miles northeast of San Francisco. And as they rust, they they're leaching all these heavy metals and paints into the bay, and they're damaging the bay. And the the stewards of the boats are being were being fined something like twenty five grand a day uh, for not dealing with the boats. But the 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 guys in charge. The, the idea was you could maybe you could tow them out to sea and scuttle them, or you could tow them out to Texas to be uh, to be dismantled and you know melted into metal and turned into something else. But they weren't sure the ships could survive the voyage, and it's illegal to take these things and and you know sink them at sea. So they sat there doing what nature was already doing to them, which is crumbling to bits. Uh, and meanwhile, California was sort of stuck in this 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 corrosion pickle of like we're paying we're we're paying one arm to the other arm to to suffer nothing anybody wants.
2: Um, One of the great things about this book, uh, and the book once again is called Rust, The Longest War by Jonathan Wallman, are the stories that you tell. And one of the things you're really interested in um, uh, is, first of all, the history uh, of the people who who tried to understand the science of rust and what to do about it, uh, and then also the present day people, these kind of warriors against rust, and we'll come to them in a second. But this this book has such a collection of terrific stories, many of them quite funny, some of them quite alarming, that um, we'd be here uh, all day, or I'll put it another way, Uh, you can tell a lot of them on this show and still not wreck the book for people who should then run out and buy it. Um, so I don't know if you have a particular favorite, but you seem, it, it, his story, as we look back in history, to have been especially attracted to a guy named Harry Brearley. Uh, and maybe you, you can just give us kind of a thumbnail or your favorite parts of his story. I, I want to preface this by saying that a theme that runs through a lot of these stories and a lot of these people are that they tend to be the Rodney Dangerfields of their field, right? They kind of don't get a lot of respect. It seems to almost attract a kind of person who's used to not getting a lot of respect, and these are often people with a very important story to tell, uh, and that story is falling on unhearing ears. But uh, give us a little portrait. Give us your favorite uh, uh, stories about Harry Brearley.
3: Well, so it's true. I I forget the Yiddish word, but there's a a word I'm sure my parents would have told me that, you know, a sort of stubborn, do-it-your-own-way kind of guy, and Harry Brearley was very much that guy. Grew up really poor. In uh, in Sheffield, the capital of of metallurgy and definitely steel making uh, in England, and never liked school. Sort of got assigned menial tasks by his parents. They didn't really expect much of him, but he was just obsessed with with industry and and making things. And he'd I, I love that as a kid, he would take the long way to school so he could stop by factories and peek in the windows and and he figured out pretty young that if he um, if he brought them some food or offered to get them their lunch, you know, the guys in steel plants would say, "Yeah, sure. If you get me my lunch, you know, you can you can hang out here." So he'd he'd go to the steelworks and he'd sit on these piles of coal and just watch them make make metal and hammer it and iron it and forge it and you know pound until sparks are flying everywhere. And I I, I guess I like that because I bet as a kid I wished I could have done that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, w- I went to a public school outside of Washington D.C. where um, you know you take you take AP courses not not as a little kid, but later, you know, when you, and you're sitting in a class at a desk and I get the impression that a guy like Harry Brearley was not a big fan of desks. Even when he, um, he rose up in a steel plant and became the, the, the manager. He, uh, he didn't really stay much at the desk. He would always be down in the steelworks doing stuff, um, with, with the guys. And, uh, he was, they, they weren't really sure. Are you a manager or a, a steel worker? Um, but that's cause he was just in love with metal and, um, I don't don't know, maybe that's a side note, but I I think I I don't want to say I fell in love with metal, but I definitely was sort of romanced with metal uh, as I wrote this book. And as a writer, you spend so much time in front of a computer screen that um, there were many days where I said, today is not a writing day. Today is a day where I'm going to be making stuff. And, you know, I've got a grinder and I'm making furniture here and there and I'm not. I'm not forging metal, but I'm definitely messing around with tools and metal. So,
2: so Harry Brearley, um, and and I think one point you make also is that he was at least sort of arguably the foremost and most important chemist uh, of his moment, except that he'd never taken, I think, even one chemistry class. Uh, that this was all sort of, you know, just sort of who he was. So let's talk yeah. about what his contribution is. I think one of sure. the things you say in the book is, you know, at, at the Harry Brearley moment, the idea of that that rust was kind of like death and taxes, right? It was a certainty. It was an inevitability. And steel, in particular, was going to rust. So so what did Harry really do? Well, one of the things he'd always been told to
3: do, you know, back... We don't remember this. I don't know if we've heard stories from our grandparents, but when you wash the dishes, you then dried them immediately and put them away. If you didn't, they would rust. Um, so he's he's messing with different alloys uh, and on... I forget it was 1912, 1913. He mixed together a new alloy with a bunch of chromium in it. And, uh, and he just left it sitting there and he came back the next day and said, wow, look at this stuff. It doesn't stain. And by stain, he meant rust. And he started showing it around. He said, this would be marvelous. Basically his first idea was this is perfect for cutlery. Cause he, as a kid, he'd been told to, to deal with the cutlery and make sure it didn't tarnish or rust. And, uh, and nobody wanted to hear him out on it. Everyone said, eh, cutlery. That's not like, who cares? And, um, He's a pretty persistent guy, which is also why I liked him. And he, uh, he found a cutler who did want to hear him out. So he, he made him some pieces of the metal, and that guy, he said, he said this is the worst stuff ever. I can't harden it. I can't forge it. I can't cut it. I can't sharpen it. This is, you're, you're not the maker of, of these great new knives. You're the maker of knives that won't cut. And so he, he you know, he's, he's trying to dig himself out of his hole, and in a way, he dug himself a bigger hole. Um, but Harry Brearley, being kind of the metallurgical genius that he was, showed him how to do it. And uh, it turns out stainless steel was indeed perfect
2: for cutlery, among other things. So uh, we're talking to Jonathan Waldman. Uh, he is the author of Rust: The Longest War. So this, this the, the the personality of Harry Brearley, I think, manifests itself in some of the other stories that you tell. Um, there are there's this whole group of people called corrosion engineers. I, I think a lot of these. A lot of these engineers, and maybe we can talk about Dan Dunmeyer, who's probably the most vivid living personality in your book, (laughs) feel as though they are—they're not—they they they have this incredibly important story to tell. That that they are sort of, you know, they're not—they're being treated like chicken little or something. That they really are saying the sky is falling. It's because the sky is rusting and the sky is falling. We're really going to be in a lot of trouble if we address this. And somehow or other, this is just such an unsexy. Uninteresting message that we have to deal with rust more than anything else, that no one will listen to them. So, um, but I'm stealing your words. You should uh, tell us. Tell tell us about Dan Dunmire. (laughs) So Dan Dunmire
3: is our nation's corrosion czar. He's the highest ranked rust official in the country. Technically, his boss's boss reports to the president. Uh, He's not in the Pentagon, but he works for the Department of Defense through a little satellite office in Northern Virginia and he 's only been doing this work for a dozen years now uh, he didn't have an office for the first few because of the office the the whole thing was so poorly funded um, since then the g a the the government accountability office has estimated that he saved the government billions of dollars but at great expense and he he um he makes his way through this kind of defense i don 't want to say quagmire but the, the, the as you said every, everyone says oh it 's so not sexy we don 't want to deal with it and when you 're when you're making missiles and you're making jets that scream at Mach whatever Mach five and, and and battleships and destroyers, the last thing you want to talk about is rust. So, so the proposal came along from Congress and all these guys in the Pentagon said, "Rust, we got much more important stuff to deal with. that has to do with security and 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 none of them wanted to hear hear about it." Um, so Dunmeier came along and he's a very he's a very quirky guy. He's uh, he's outspoken. He's a little um, he's a little awkward in public, but maybe that gets him some attention, so maybe he plays it up. He hates goats. Um, he, he
2: does. He hates goats. Which, goats are kind of which, a big which, issue in Hartford right now, so I was just you – know, <laughs> it's, an, it's an unrelated problem, but he, he hates goats and wants to kill them. Anyway, continue.
3: <laughs> yeah, goats, goats have chewed away a bunch of uh, – uh, bushes up in Hawaii near some important antennas and, and the antennas the, the foundations are now eroding because there's no vegetation there. So he wants to get the goats among but he also wants to um to eliminate rust or at least he, he wants to go from find and fix to predict and manage. Um but that's also not extremely uh sexy so so he sort of steps it up a notch and he tells people that he, he's fighting the second law of thermodynamics. And at least now that sort of concedes that what he's doing is, is basically impossible. Um, but um, but worth as he says, it's worth doing because everything he 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 must have said to me a hundred times. He said, "It's all for the warrior. Everything I do is for the warrior." And 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 Dan's a funny guy. I write in the book that he reminds me a lot of a, a coach in high school who's just kind of yelling at you to go faster and sort of belittling you a little bit in the in the aim that you'll you'll take it to the right place and sort of take it to heart and and rise above. But. Uh, he must have told me a hundred times, it's all for the warrior. And I'd say, Dan, I know, I know you said that already. And
2: <laughs> he'd say, yeah, but I can't get it through enough. It's for the warrior. Well, you know, if um, he, imagine that you're him, and that I'm some uncomprehending, I don't know, congressman on the Appropriations Committee or something, and I'm saying, well, mister Dunmire, I understand that you're very concerned about Russ, but really, in terms of America's, America's military priorities, there's so many other things to worry about. I understand that Russ gets on boats, but we can scrub it off with some steel wool and paint over it uh, and get on with our, our lives. What would Aside from trying to throttle me, uh, what would uh, Dan Dunmire? What would he say to 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 readjust my understanding of this?
3: Well, he'd say that hasn't worked. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first time I met Dan Dunmire was actually at a Navy conference in Norfolk, Virginia, called Mega Rust, um, which <laughs> which is one of the better named conferences I've ever heard of, and uh, and I, I believe it is paid for by our tax dollars, but it's also for a great cause because they're trying to save billions of dollars. Um, by changing the, the tactics that they use to 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 approach Rust, and at that conference, I heard a number of admirals say that they were worried. So, Rust poses the number one threat to the U.S. Navy more than any other country, other any whatever rogue nation or something. And um, and I, I heard these admirals say that we can't buy our way to. Let's say they want to have three hundred and some three hundred and change ships, big battleships, destroyers, cruisers, carriers. They said, we can't buy our way there. We cannot afford to because we can't even keep 200 ships with what rust is doing to them. And I heard one of the admirals who was uh, an engineer who attended MIT. He said that we need to change the way the Navy deals with rust. We need sailors to be developing a questioning attitude so that if they see something on the deck of a ship or down below decks, they say, is it supposed to be brown and, and cruddy like that? Is it supposed to squeak? You know, should... Should the, you know, should the head squeak when it turns? Um, and I, I I didn't serve, but I did not expect to hear someone at that level say that a, a rigid, structured branch of the Defense Department should be developing a questioning attitude. That That seemed really provocative to
2: me. Um, one of the ways in which – I mean it, it's, it's – one of the recurrent themes in your book is how – as we we're saying, how hard it is to get people's attention about this mm-hmm. and somehow make it real or sexy or interesting to them. Um, we're going to have to take a break in just a second. But before we do, we should mention uh, that one of the very important figures recruited by Dan Dunmeyer uh, was LeVar Burton uh, because yeah. you've got to have Geordi LaForge uh, explain this to people. So, so what is LeVar Burton's role in all this?
3: well the for the I, the primary role is that Dan Denmeyer is a trekkie through and through, and he probably could have th- imagined no one better to to take this fight and present it to the world because of his Star Trek appeal also because he used to host reading Rainbow and that's a, a, you know educational um and he you know he's a he's a he's a movie star mm-hmm. um he's also really into stem you know science technology engineering and math um but I think it really comes down to the fact that Dan Dan Dunmire, our nation's highest-ranked Rust official, is uh, is at heart a Trekkie, and um, I, I, we t- we talked a few times about how he went to the convention in I want to say '06 in Las Vegas, and he went there dressed as uh, Captain Kirk, you know, with the, the full uniform and everything, and he stayed up at the um, the Stratosphere, the giant tower, about a mile north of the convention center. And our nation's highest ranked rust official walked about a mile down Paradise Boulevard with the uniform of the Starfleet Command <laughs> in public, and I thought <laughs> but yep, I know why he chose levar Burton,
2: so he he's getting LeVar Burton to make these sort of educational video podcast things right um and and it almost becomes like Godfather three right we We even have a little <laughs> transcript where where Lavar Burton's trying to get out, and Dan Dunmire keeps pulling him back um
3: yeah, so there were originally supposed to be, I think, three or four corrosion videos, and every time Dan Dan says, come on, these are so great, let's do five, he calls them Lavar five, <laughs> LeVar six. So there's actually now seven. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they just finished filming number seven. I was on the film production studio in Florida when they filmed number five, and uh, and I overheard I overheard Dan convince LeVar to do number six. <laughs> <laughs> First he resisted, and then he, like everybody around Dan, he yielded. He said, oh, you're so persuasive, sure, I'll do it. It's all for a good cause, and and probably the most important part of the conversation is where Lavar said, "You know, is is this working? Or is this having any effect?" And Dan said, "Of course it is. Like this is, this is making waves in the, in the Defense Department. A lot of sailors and a lot of soldiers are seeing these videos and realizing that this is an issue to keep in the back of their heads. And um, it's a it's a, it's something like twenty billion dollars a year to our um defense system. So um, so if that's what it takes, you know, getting some guys to watch a little video." Um, And if what gets him to watch is a a famous guy who we know from Star Trek, more power to him.
2: All right. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, We're with Jonathan Waldman. He is the author of Rust, The Longest War. At the end of the show today, you're going to meet an artist who works in Rust. Rust is horrible and terrible and dangerous and deadly, but it's also kind of beautiful.
0: I'm going to break my, I'm going to break my rusty key.
2: Well, all those delicious things they make on the food schmooze, sooner or later they have to open a can. Uh, And that brings us to another thing we want to talk to Jonathan Waldman about. He's the author of Rust, The Longest War. Uh, I cannot emphasize how entertaining this book is. I mean, it just I I realize that Rust doesn't, I mean, that's the whole point, is that Rust doesn't really jump out at you as this really fun thing to know more about. But it really is a fun thing to know more about. So, Jonathan Waldman, earlier in the show, we talked about the conditions that must exist um, for for Rust to happen. Uh, And, obviously, Rust uh, so anywhere in the proximity of canned goods. Not such a great thing. But a lot of those conditions do exist. I mean, we want to put our food in cans, but, I mean, at one point you're describing um, Coca-Cola, Coke, which I think you describe as a corrosion nightmare, one of many rejected advertising slogans for Coca-Cola. Um, but, I mean, talk a little bit about just the, the struggle to find a way to, to, to have a can that wouldn't rust. Sure. So I, mean, you, I happen you've to li- been to Can School. We should say that. I'm,
3: I actually got my diploma from Can School just uh, a week ago. Uh, so tell <laughs> us about Can School. So I happen to live uh, ten miles up the road from the world's largest can manufacturer, and we go through the world goes through like two hundred billion two hundred billion cans a year, which is enough to make, let's say, four dozen towers to the moon, and that's every year, and. I thought it was a good idea to look into how we keep cans from corroding. And I sort of had that feeling confirmed when on the first day of can school, which is organized by the Ball Corporation, you probably know them through jars. On the first day of can school, I heard cans described as a time bomb. And I thought, yep, <laughs> that's that's why. So the best example, Coke is pretty good, but Mountain Dew is actually even more corrosive. And there's a very there's a somewhat notorious case in which a guy in St. Louis who just happened to have the last name Ball, but no relation to the Ball Corporation, opened up a can and said he found a mouse. And a lot of guys probably make this claim hoping to get a good settlement from a very, you know, a Fortune 500 company. And so so Mountain Dew, which is owned by Pepsi, uh, Pepsi said, well, send us the can, send us the Mountain Dew, send us the mouse, we'll evaluate it. And so off this went to a veterinary pathologist in Salt Lake City, and he evaluated the mouse and figured out, based on some of the the features of the mouse, that the mouse was at no more than a a week or two old. It just didn't have cells developed in its lungs. It didn't have toes or whatever, you know, different parts that mice develop as as they grow. But the can had a date on it. The can had been manufactured and closed 74 days earlier. So Mountain Dew publicly said, there's no way that you found this mouse in our can of, in our product, because our product would have corroded it away to, to a jelly-like substance <laughs> after, after seventy-four days. So there's there's actually you can look up online. There's a haiku about this jelly-like substance, and I don't I don't have it off the top of my head, but it, it, it's a great example of of Pepsi's defense was almost just like atrociously gross. Of like that's how that's how much like a battery acid this stuff you're drinking is. Is that it would it would just destroy anything you put in it, and it, being I don't know. I I like these weird stories. So I I found a law review article that goes into detail about all the various things that have been found in beverages over the year. And if a mouse sounds gross, um, when people have found them, they often describe them as a rat with the hair sucked off or, quote, blood vessels of unknown origin. And, (laughs) yeah, you feel
2: for someone who starts drinking blood vessels of unknown origin. Um, so so, yeah, so, so yeah. this this obviously so you got to find something that can contain something that's that caustic. So how did they do it?
3: So we call them aluminum cans, but aluminum is good and rigid and is what allows us to stack pallets on top of pallets and cans on top of other cans and fridges and pantries and coolers. But really, it's a plastic can, and it's it's it, it's just we call it aluminum or we call it just a can because that's sort of a a, a shortening, but. Of course, it's not just a metal can. The can would corrode. If you just put Coke in an aluminum can, it would corrode in three days. So all the all the cans for foods and beverages are lined with an epoxy, um, which which the industry calls an internal coating. And this is no surprise. It's sort of the same with when you drink coffee out of a cup; it's got wax on it. You can't put hot coffee in paper; it would it would turn to mush in about ten seconds. (laughs) So this epoxy is studied very very carefully, and this is basically why I went to can school to figure out. How they figure out how much epoxy to use, how they figure out, and that's determined by how corrosive the, they don't call them beverages, they call them products, how corrosive the product is. And then they study the interaction between the product and the coating to make sure that it doesn't change the flavor of the thing that you're probably paying somewhere from 50 cents to a buck to drink. So I learned a lot about it this at Cannes School. I learned that this coating is uh it's the very same stuff that's sort of at the heart of the baby bottle bPA um, dare I say fracas or mm-hmm. uh, controversy eighty uh, percent of these coatings are bpa it's the it's a it's a material that makes plastic plastic um, and it's what keeps mountain dew from attacking your can it's what keeps tomato sauce it what's key. It, it's uh, there, there's something like fifteen thousand different coatings, all fine tuned for all the foods and beverages out there. And one of my favorite factoids I learned in this is that um, before say say you're making a new say you're going to make Collins Energy Drink, and you, you've decided this is this is way better than Radio. You're going to start selling energy drinks, so you call up Ball and you say I'm going to make a run of whatever ten million gallons, so I'm going to need I'm going to need like a hundred million cans. Ball says, that's great. Send us some of your energy drink. We'll test it to see uh, how much coating to put in and if we can even put it in a can. And one in seven times, Ball will say, your energy drink is too corrosive. You need to change the formula. Here are some ways how. You can cut down on the dyes or the salts or the caffeine. But as it stands right now, your beverage needs to go in some other container. It cannot go in a can. And that's ast- that just astonished
2: me. Yeah. I would like to emphasize, Jonathan, that when I do put out my energy drink, it will contain only blood vessels of known origin. <laughs> if you encounter a blood vessel in it, I will be able to tell you whose blood vessel it is. <laughs> um, so um, so did this make you, uh, when you were all done, and we should say you almost got kicked out of can school for being almost too attentive a student, which is unusual in life. Um, but did this make you, did it change your behavior? Are you l- less likely to go get yourself a delicious beverage or open up a can of crushed red pack tomatoes because of what you know
3: yeah it has so the most surprising thing that well there's there's a couple fine points about this one is that it turns out that exposure to bpa is a little bit like exposure to ddt and that it affects people before puberty much more greatly than afterwards and also it seems to be much more potentially hazardous to women than to men uh because i will never be breastfeeding a child it doesn't quite seem the hazard to me but again these are just known hazards i mean what what we're learning about BPA is that the tolerance that we allow, that the FDA allows, may be off by a one to eight orders of magnitude. Not like mm, half off or a quarter off, but like you know a billion times off. Uh, and I talked to a guy who works at the Coatings Research Institute. Like I said, there's fifteen thousand coatings, and a lot of a lot of experience and technique goes into making them. So I talked to a guy who has patents on these coatings, and he said. I know what goes into them. I know what can go wrong. I won't drink out of a can because of it. He said, I'm terrified. (laughs) Yeah, you know, I I sort of, I I probably jumped back from my phone. I said, you know, I'm writing this down, right? It's for a book. (laughs) And he said, I know. And so we we went on to talk about whether the Surgeon General's warning should change. Right now it says pregnant women should not drink alcoholic beverages during pregnancy. And we were talking about, and he's, he'd, he said he'd get behind it, but the Surgeon General would have to propose it. He said he thinks that warning should be changed to women
2: should not drink canned beverages. Hmm. Um, we've got a, a call. This is where we're switching gears a little bit, but we, ha- we have to. The hour is going very fast. There's so many uh, terrific things from Jonathan's book uh, that uh, it's moving much faster, uh, our time, than rust. Uh, so here's Tim <laughs> in Fairfield. Hi, Tim. You're on the air. Hi, uh, good afternoon. I was uh, curious um, for your guests um, in your research and travels.
0: I recall during, especially during the 70s, there was um, a big push for the steel called the uh, Corten or Corten Steel, mm-hmm. and that it was to replace all the guardrails and bridges and and many other applications. But then we don't see it um, anymore. Do you, do you just from like a hands-on, do you know what happened?
3: Yep. Yeah. Good question. So Core 10 Steel is the stuff that sort of works like stainless steel, except instead of staying shiny on the outside, it forms a protective layer of rust, and that sort of guards against the inner layers successively rusting away. And I think the Barclays Center in Brooklyn is made of it. The U.S. Steel Tower is very famously made of it in Pittsburgh. And I talked to a guy who worked as a window washer on the top floors of that building, Uh, and it was very embarrassing for U.S. Steel because that tower... Because it was built in a wetter environment than perhaps it was meant for, um, it stained the sidewalks, kind of this rusty red-brown, and fi- five blocks in all directions. And U.S. Steel had to pay a lot of money to clean up the sidewalks, and it was sort of an insult to their to their new fancy stuff. Um, and, of course, Alcoa making aluminum is just across the river, and they didn't stain the sidewalks any color. So uh, it turns out that uh, Cortan is really useful in some environments. It's not especially as good as it's advertised in others. Um, and it's also more expensive than a lot of other steels. Um, a lot of people ask me, you know, should we just switch to stainless steel and use that for everything, but we can't afford to. And that in stainless steel isn't nearly as tough or ductile as other metals. So it's not the right thing. And Cortan isn't always the right thing, but you do see it. There's a, there's a building on Cornell's campus. I think it's the psychology building and students call it old Rusty.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, this sort of um, uh, hooks into another theme in the book, which is, I mean, we talk about rust as being as certain as death and taxes, but it really isn't. And there are things that you can do. And one of the things you talk about is galvanizing, right? And that, and that in, in, in Italy, in, uh, there's well, in Europe in general, they, they galvanize a lot more metal than we do here. Explain what that means and what the implications are.
3: Yeah, so galvanizing, it's funny, we've known about galvanizing almost longer than we've known about the science of rust. Galvanizing is pretty simple. You take steel and you dip it in a big bath of molten zinc. Um, I think the baths in this country at the various galvanizing plants are something like 50 or 60 feet long. So if you've got even a beam 100 feet long, you can dip in half of one end and half the other end. Um, And it works because zinc... uh, it's a weaker metal in that it's more electronegative or less noble than iron, and so it sort of sacrifices itself. And that's one of the ways rust works is if you put two metals in contact, the weaker one is the one that corrodes, which is why a lot of people stick anodes on boats. They're they're basically big big blocks of zinc that you strap on there. Um and galvanized the galvanizing association, the American galvanizing association has all these studies that show that galvanizing works this much better than paint at much less cost than over the lifespan of a bridge. It's even more effective. Uh, and they, you know, they say they're taking on the paint army because in this country, for whatever reason, we love bright colors. We love the look of paint. The paint industry might have more lobbying, who knows, but, but we seem sort of stuck on painting and Europe meanwhile is sort of on the galvanizing program. And, um, I suggest at the end of my book that maybe we ought to look to what they're doing because they're a little more preservation minded than we are.
2: Um, Jonathan Walden, I'm sure when you're at a party and you mention that uh, you've written a book about rust, I mean you just have lots of people gathering around you uh, wanting to talk yeah, uh, more, yeah, more yeah. and more. But to, uh, but I, I'm sure one of the p- questions that people do ask, or the series of questions that people do ask, has to do with their cars um, and 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 should they get rust proofing and all, all those kinds of things and and what about road salt? What's that doing? And I don't know. Do you have like a two or three? Uh, point uh, uh, car and, and, and rust spiel that, that you have ready. Yep. Uh, Absolutely. To, uh, so give, give it to us. Give us your car <laughs> rust elevator pitch.
3: So automobiles have gotten a great deal better since about the year 2000. I talked to the corrosion consultant who, in addition to working on car design, also made the coins in our pocket or helped compose the uh, design, the, the alloy, so that they wouldn't corrode. Mm. Um, when submitted to our finger oils, he worked on the restoration of the Statue of Liberty and ensured that it wouldn't fall over because of rust. And he told me that basically, through design and much better paints that just stick better to metal, um, that cars since about two thousand are gonna are gonna survive as long as other you know the engine does. Um, he there are still some companies that make those aftermarket cathodic protection systems that hook up to your battery. But they don't—they uh, don't really do anything. They—the um, FTC has sued a bunch of manufacturers of those things, and they said, you know, it sounds great and it would work in a fish tank, but unless you're driving in a fish tank, it just doesn't work. Um, road salt's pretty damaging. You know, we talk about the Rust Belt. Road salt's pretty damaging in what I refer to as the Salt Belt states, which is everywhere north and east of Kansas City, um, where I am in Colorado. We don't—we uh, don't—we don't throw salt on the roads, um, and salt is so bad for cars because. Chlorine is even more reactive than oxygen. So it really gets things going corrosion wise. Um, But it also lets us drive our zippy cars around, you know, on on days like today. So um, that's my that's my spiel. Um, It's actually we're, we're lucky. We're really lucky. I mean, I, I would have liked to live in the 1880s, but cars now are pretty cool too. Right,
2: uh, as somebody who briefly owned a 1999 Kia Sportage, I can tell you that that 2,000 figure might actually be quite accurate uh, as a <laughs> as a break as a breaking point, as it were. All right, we're talking to Jonathan Waldman. He's going to stay with us for the final segment, but we're also going to be joined in the final segment by an artist who believes that rust is beautiful.
1: The show was produced by Lydia Brown and me, Kyone Wolf. Our intern is Sydney Loro. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Jack Haley. For show pages, articles, and videos of the Faith Middleton Show staff drinking rusty nails, visit our website, WNPR.org. And now... Back to Colin.
2: But right now we're doing a show about Rust. With us is Jonathan Waldman, uh, author of Rust, The Longest War. A fascinating and very entertaining uh, new book about, well, about the war against Rust. Um, And I mean, there's so many things here we haven't had time to cover, including... I'll look at the future, and, and even there's actually a Rust store in Wisconsin. Uh, anyway, we can't tell you about all that. You just have to read the book. Uh, but we do want to talk a little bit about the aesthetics of Rust. The minute that Lydia Brown, our producer, started talking about doing the show, I said, you know, I think there's more and more artists who are working in in Rust as either a medium or an aesthetic or both. And and even before we meet uh, Esther Solons, uh, who's an artist doing exactly that, uh, just a little down the road in Rhode Island, um, you found the same thing. You actually found. A a photographer uh, who has taken, what, more than 30,000 photos of of rust and its magnificent colors? Exactly. And she's her stuff is absolutely stunning. She grew up in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania.
3: Her grandfather was a steelworker at the Bethlehem Steelworks, and she has since gone to art school. But not long before she went, she sort of just noticed the steelworks and said, I should go check it out. So she went in and... She's sort of spent the last nine years since then sneaking back in. Um, she's eventually gotten permission from some of the higher-ups um, from the company that now owns the abandoned steelworks to go in there. But it's still kind of a risky endeavor. There's all sorts of weirdos and, you know, crackheads and copper thieves who are in there. And she takes these pictures of Rust, and she's shown them to old steelworkers, and they're just they're just floored. All of them say, like, I never knew it could be this pretty. And her stuff, it's... I. It's a funny word i I always say it's not just Polachian like it doesn 't just look like a a smattering of colors she um some of her her photos look like Japanese hieroglyphics or they look like animal skins or they look like um the aurora they i mean they're they're really really evocative and it's a funny thing to use words to describe pictures so check out her website or even the the end papers on my book that's one of her images as as is the cover uh, but it's it's absolutely stunning and she she does sort of what I did. She, she zooms way into a thing that most of us are like, I don't know,
2: it's brown and ugly. Why, why think about it twice? And we should say that we've been using the terms rust and corrosion kind of interchangeably. That's Jonathan's fault, but, um, they, <laughs> um, but he, he cops do it in his book. Um, but, I mean, corrosion, rust is what happens to iron. Corrosion is what happens to all metals. And corrosion can produce a real panoply of colors, right? There's, I mean, it isn't just reddish-brown nastiness.
3: Right and I forget the list because you know most of us are familiar with uh, with aluminum and and copper uh and iron but if you go through the list of all the metals
2: you know out there you, th- some of them turn purple or blue or silver or whatever as they rust Terbium um, turns ca- maroon thallium turns blue scandium turns pink that kind of thing, right? I didn't, yeah, exactly. I didn't. I didn't memorize those things, so that's the in the notes. <laughs> uh, let's uh, let's add Esther Solons to this uh, uh, conversation. Uh, she is a, a Rhode Island based visual artist. She does. As we started to get ready for the show, Lydia and I discovered there are a lot of artists working in uh, in rust. There are websites devoted to many different artists are working in rust. That might even be where we found Esther. So first of all, Esther, welcome to the conversation. Thank you. And so tell, tell us about your art. Tell us about what you do with rust.
4: Well, I have for many years been working with materials that um, transform over time. So I didn't actually start out trying to work with rust. I actually was working with salt and um, and discovered that salt had all its own properties. Um, you know, it it. You can When you mix it with water, it crystallizes. And, and I was working in salt for, for several years when I realized that every single thing I owned had rusted that was, <laughs> that was made of metal. So, it, you know, it was a problem. Like, you know, my, my tools were rusty. And, and then I started thinking, well, okay, so they're rusting. Well, maybe I, should, instead of, you know, thinking of it as a negative thing, maybe uh, there's some way that I can use it. So I started out with the idea of if I took iron filings and put them between two, sandwiched them between uh, two pieces of like cheesecloth, and put them in salt water, uh, to see what would happen. If like in, I like the idea that that what happens is that in a way rust forms its own marks. Um, you know, there's a controlled part of it where you you know you shape an image, but then um, the rusting process kind of makes the image do things that you didn't really plan for it to do, and so um, that's basically how I started and, and ended up working with rust for about six years.
2: As you, I was trying to figure out if there was. And uh, being sort of in public radio, I'm constantly trying to extrude meaning. Uh, in ways that I probably shouldn't, uh, but at looking at all this art uh, that's that's rust-based or rust-influenced, and looking at uh, a rust aesthetic, Esther, I find myself wondering: Is there kind of a steampunk thing going on here, or is there kind of a sense that you know maybe we're ecologically living in end times, where stuff that uh, is stuff starting to fall apart, and we may not be able to put it back together, and climate change uh, is is kind of accelerating that process? Is I'm, I'm not necessarily speaking specifically of your art, but as you look at that aesthetic and the, the great number of artists who seem to be drawn to this medium right now, um, it, do you see anything like what I just babbled to you?
4: Um, no, <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I mean, maybe you're seeing something you know larger than I'm seeing. Uh, I think that if you look at any material, uh, maybe there's a change in the way that artists use materials. You know, maybe there was a time where Uh, you might have had a more conservative approach to material where people only used paint. Um, And I think maybe what you might be seeing is people sort of looking at the common things around them and noticing them and and kind of saying, wow, you know, that's beautiful.
2: Do you feel differently about rust now? I mean, do you feel like rust is kind of your friend a little bit?
4: (laughs) I guess I do. Um, I guess I do. I mean, it's amazing how many different things, you know, over the years that I used rust, you know, I started out using iron filings, um, but then I realized, oh, gee, I guess I could use steel wool. And as you and Jonathan were just talking about, I discovered also that it produces a lot of different colors um, and how whether I added salt to the water, you know, whether the water had other things in it, um, inadvertently that changed the colors, um, whether I use blocks of ice um, to hold it in place. All those things sort of changed, you know, the way it looks.
2: Um I'm going to turn back to Jonathan for just a second here we we're, we're kind of running out of time, but you know as I'm saying that that stuff to Esther, I'm also thinking about the end of your book and so it's it's reasonable and maybe even important to say, okay, so one way that you can look at this is that rust really is kind of symbolic of you know the end to which things come uh, and and maybe we're we're coming to that end faster even than we want to right now, uh, and that it's all going to be this very rusty landscape with Mel Gibson walking around with a little cattle dog and and mutants in BDS costumes and that's like the how, how everything ends. But I mean, did you one of the things you did at the end is sort of talk talk to people about the future. Is there any possibility that we could live in a post-Rust world someday?
3: Before I answer
2: that, I got to jump back because what, what Esther
3: just said was so, there was one thing you know, you're asking about extruding meaning from something and in a way it reminds me of what Robert Boyle was doing in the 16th century. You know, mm. look what happens when you make things rust. And even better is that some of the science today with rust is is down at the corrosion lab at NASA and at Key West. They basically put metal on this big rack on the beach and watch what the various paints do and watch how these things rust. And another cute little anecdote is they're they're working on paints that work really well for the Navy, and the one thing they don't want is paints that turn pink. Right, yeah. And the Navy doesn't go for that. So at the end of the book, I, um, I go my my take is sort of that it's so easy to to think of a technological solution but i guess i'm i'm always i'm with dan Dunmire in this that 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 changing the way we think about rust is a cultural thing um that and as he said you can't you can't prevent it but you can um you can slow it down um you can predict and manage um a rust-free world is an impossible dream it's a nice dream um but when it comes down to it in whatever billion years when people land on the planet you know from outer space and and say, what did we have here? They'll—they'll they'll find rocks. They're not going to find metal things. They're not going to find the Statue of Liberty, but they'll find the granite foundation beneath it. Um, they'll find that you know the pyramids in Egypt but not, uh, not, say, the Alaska pipeline.
2: Right. Well, if they're from Mars, they better not be talking smack to us about our rust because their <laughs> planet is totally rusty. Um, yeah. All right. Uh, well, we have to stop there. And uh, Jonathan Waldman and Esther Solons, thanks so much. We'll have links at wnpr.org to all the things we talked to about. You can see Esther Solons' art that way. Uh, and believe me, we have not nearly exhausted the entertaining anecdotes about rust that Jonathan has. It's all gone. It's all gone. To rest. To rest.
1: Okay, I've got a joke for you. All right, let's hear it. What do you get when you cross a rusty nail and a foot?
0: <laughs> what?
1: Tetanus. You get tetanus, Greg. <laughs> oh.